So don't have pity on me. Yes, I'm sick. Yes, my team lost. I'm all right. I'm, I can handle it. Um, I'm a big boy. Um, but uh, we have much, much more important things um, to get to um, today. So get your Bibles. Take them out. If you don't have one, there is one in front of you. We provide it for you. Um, then turn to page 200 because um, today we officially start um, our, our months-long journey through the book of Judges. And you're going to especially need the text in front of you in this series because there's just a lot to cover. There's a lot we're going to go through and I need you to be kind of tracking with the story. Again, the goal is not me. It's not my voice. It's not how intellectual or witty or impressive I can be. The goal is the, the text. The power is in, in the word. And so you need that open in front of you and what I'm supposed to be saying, what I'm saying is supposed to be coming from that word because that's what God works through and that's what he uses. So open that up and follow along, follow along um, with me. This is called the book of Judges, right? Well, we don't actually get into any Judges until chapter 3. Uh, there's this cycle between chapters 3 and 16 of uh, these basically six different cycles of judges. We're going to see the same thing over and over and over again. People are going to rebel against God. Um, God's going to then turn them over to their enemies. Uh, retribution. He's going to repay them for what they've done. People are going to cry out to God. They're going to repent and come back to him. And then God's going to send a judge to defeat those enemies and restore the people. That's the cycle. That's judges uh, over and over and over again. Rebellion, retribution, repentance, restoration. Over and over and over again. Um, so that's the whole book, but we're not there um, yet. Did my mic fall? Um, did I lose my mic? Um, what happened here? I have no mic. What is the mic? Oh, here it is. Sorry. Thank you. What is going on? Um, my mic came unclipped. There we go. That's what happens when you get too excited. Um, thank you. Um, Elaine is like something's wrong. Um, Elaine is like my go-to for... She keeps me alert of things. Um, so that's the cycle of the book of Judges. Uh, but we're not there yet. We've got this introduction we've got to get through. And this is really important because chapter 1 is basically going to set the pattern and set the stage for everything that is going to come. Everything starts here. And if we get this chapter, it's going to really help us understand the rest of the book. And as we talked about last week, man, things are about to get a little bit weird. Um, things are about to get a little bit graphic and um, disturbing. And what we're going to do is I want to convince you that these 3,000-year-old stories um, are very relevant and important um, to your life here today in the 21st century. We're going to look at their lives. We're going to look at God's dealing with them as a paradigm for our lives and how God deals with us. But remember, we're not looking at these stories as moral examples. These guys are all pretty terrible, as we're going to see. But no, we're looking at these as warnings of the great um, danger of sin, um, but then for that purpose to then lead us um, to the great faithfulness of God in preserving and protecting and being with his people in spite of their unfaithfulness to him. All right, so sin is basically the main theme of the book, and we're going to look at a lot of that. All right, things are going to get really, really bad. And if you're anything like me, your life has probably been one long struggle with sin, right? A struggle that is quite often probably marked by failure. The problem is that we're often not very concerned about that, right? We don't take sin very seriously these days. Well, Judges is going to help correct that for us because it is going to show us very graphically the consequences and the wages of sin. And in so showing us the, the graphic nature of our sin, what it's going to do is then just kind of magnify um, the grace and the mercy and the goodness of our God who is faithful to us through that sin. Right? Israel is about to struggle 
a lot. And it's our goal to not say, oh man, look at those terrible guys. No, it's our goal to see our struggles in their struggles. And then to find the only remedy to our struggles in this faithful God that preserves his people. So let's just jump into the text and get started. We're going to have to do this a bit differently than usual. If we don't want to be in Judges for three years, we're going to have to cover some big chunks of text. And again, it is our firm belief that the word is the most important part. So I am committed to whatever I preach on reading that whole text, which will leave a challenge for us here. So instead of just reading the whole thing for you up front, I'm going to be reading and talking, reading and talking. I'm going to kind of break it up a little bit as we go so we don't just read for 10 straight minutes um, in this um, text. And listen, some of you have never read Judges. I'm going to read it for you. I'm going to make you read Judges. This is going to be the first time many of you have ever read this book. So it's important that we read the text. And plus, you guys can laugh at me as I try to pronounce all of these really, really difficult names. Um, so that's, that's different than we've always done, but we'll do it. Three headings um, to help us organize our thoughts this morning. We're going to talk just about context at the beginning, then the conquest, and then we're going to look at the compromise of Israel. Let me, let me pray for our time, um, and then we'll, we'll continue. Father, um, I believe um, in the Holy Spirit. Um, I believe that he is real and that he works, um, Father. And so right now I need um, him um, to come and work um, through me. Father, I have um, great um, weakness physically. But Father, more importantly, I have weakness spiritually. Father, I am, I am helpless to do um, what I would like to do here this morning. Father, only you, um, through your spirit, through the word, can accomplish what needs to happen um, this morning. Father, help us. Um, to see um, the truths of this text. Father, I pray that your spirit would show us our our sinfulness, show us your grace, and that everything that we do in this ancient book would lead us um, and show us and point us forward to Jesus Christ. Father, this time is about him. We are all about him. We exist um, for Jesus, and we exist because of him. So, Father, we need you. Um, Work in me. Work through me. Um, Father, for your glory and for the good of everyone in here. And, Father, I, I ask and I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Judges chapter 1, just verse 1 to start. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? All right, if any of this is going to make any sense, we've got to get a little bit of context first. And verse 1 gives us that historical context after the death of Joshua. All right, that's why we just read Joshua 24. Right? It just happened right before we get um, to Judges chapter 1. And a number of Old Testament books begin the exact same way. Right? Joshua starts after the death of Moses. Which means that to understand Judges, we've got to understand Joshua. And to understand Joshua, we've got to understand Moses, which is the first five books of the Bible. So here, as we begin, for you is the quickest ever summary of the first six books of the Bible. 211 chapters, 6,510 verses, about two minutes um, is, is the goal, right? In the beginning, God, nothing else. But out of his abundant glory and his goodness and his love, he creates. And most importantly, he creates for himself a people. Right? People who are like him in many ways. He is their creator. He is their king. They owe everything to him. Well, what happens? They rebel against him. They reject him. And they separate themselves from him. And the natural result of their um, choice is death. And this is how things would have remained were it not um, for God's gracious intervention. He right away provides 
um, a way for man to be restored and reconciled to God. God is committed to his original plan of creating and preserving a people for himself. So in chapter 12 of Genesis, God calls and saves a man named Abraham. And he makes three promises to Abraham. And these three promises, you've got to get these to understand the Old Testament. He says to Abraham, I'm going to give you a great land. I am going to make you into a great people. And I am going to make you a great blessing to all other peoples. And this is a covenant, which is just kind of like a contract or a, an agreement. right? God makes these with his people. And it's this promise on his part to do things for them, though they do not deserve it or, or earn it. We go from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Joseph. Like Jacob is the father of this 12 sons who are going to be the 12 tribes of Israel. And at the end of Genesis, God's people are thriving and growing down in Egypt. The very next page, the beginning of Exodus, things have changed. God's people have grown. They're big and they're great and strong in number, but they are now slaves in Egypt. God has mercy on them, he rescues them, he brings them out of Egypt um, under the leadership of Moses, and then they begin this 40-year-long journey to this land that was promised to Abraham 400 years earlier. Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all covers that journey. God binds himself to his people through another covenant, he gives them a law, they reject him continually, he refuses to ever completely reject them, and finally, eventually, he brings them to the cusp of the promised land. That's where Joshua 24, right? They've entered into the land, right? The end of um, Deuteronomy, we just sang on Jordan's stormy banks. And they're standing on the banks, looking over the Jordan um, into the promised land, right? And that's basically where we stand. Joshua then goes into the land. They kind of conquer it. Um, one big nation together, Israel conquers the land. But now it is left to the tribes individually to possess their individual inheritance. And that's what Judges is about. Joshua is mostly positive and triumphant, but um, Judges is a little bit different. Joshua has died. And the key to understanding what's going on here is you've got to get the land. You've got to understand how important this land is. It's not necessarily about the physical land. It's about what the land represented. Um, blessing, God's grace, um, covenant um, with him. He had told the people over and over and over again, I'm giving you this land, take it. I'm giving you this land, take it. And as we read in Joshua 24, we see the people very clearly, solemnly swearing to do this. We also will serve the Lord for he is our God. Right? They're covenanting, they're promising that they're going to do it. And now we get to judges to see if they actually will. Verses 2 through 7. And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Come up with me into the territory allotted to me, that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. Then Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand. And they defeated ten thousand of them at Bezek. They found Adonai Bezek at Bezek, and fought against him, and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. All right, and it begins. <laughs> toes and thumbs are being cut off. Um, and I want to warn you up front that if you're uncomfortable with this story, 
then Judges probably isn't for you um, because it's going to get a whole lot worse um, than this. But this, I think, provides us a privilege, uh, an opportunity to talk about a kind of an important question that's probably lingering in the back of many of our minds. Here's the big issue people have with Joshua and Judges. If you've ever talked to a non-believer, ever, I'm sure this has come up at some point. And we just ran through this history and glossed over the fact that we now have one people group moving into an already occupied land and wiping out and driving out that other people group. What do we do with this? Um, is this genocide? Is this ethnic cleansing? How, how could God possibly command such a thing? And you need to have an answer um, to this question because it is. It does raise this, this issue. And I think the answer lies simply in the fact that you've got to understand who these people in the land were. Right? These were not um, nice, cuddly, innocent, helpless people. When God had first promised the land to Abraham back in Genesis 15, he said that he would not yet give it to Abraham because the iniquity of the people currently in that land was not yet complete. Right? Iniquity means immorality. It means evil. It means wickedness. Right? These were bad people in the land. And God, when he's dealing with Abraham, seems to be saying, listen, I'm giving them 400 years. I'm giving them time. They, they have their opportunities to repent. Um, they can turn and go another direction. Right? But it's not going to happen. In Deuteronomy 9, God cautions Israel. He says, listen, don't think it's because you're so great or you're so good that I'm bringing you into this land. No, he says, it's specifically not that. It's because the people in it are so wicked and they must be driven out. Deuteronomy 18.9 describes some of their practices, which included child sacrifice, the burning of their own children to appease one of their gods. There's this other book called The Wisdom of Solomon. Right? It's not scripture. It's not part of our Old Testament, but it's an ancient book, and there's probably some history to it. Listen to what it says in chapter 12. It says, those who lived in the, um, old, in the, those who lived in the old holy land, you hated them for their detestable practice, their works of sorcery and their unholy rites, their merciless slaughter of their children, and their sacrificial feasting on human flesh and blood. That's how this ancient source describes the, the practices of these Canaanite people. Right? It's, it's a bit disturbing. It sounds like there were vampires and zombies in the land or, or something. So, so this con... This conquest was not ethnic cleansing. This was not imperialism. What this was was a unique, one-time-in-history example of God using his physical nation of Israel um, to enact his judgment against evil. This was justice. For centuries, God had been patient with the perverted wickedness of these people, and the time had come for God to act. ISIS, uh, Jihadi John, right? We all desperately want there to be justice for the terrible acts that these men have committed. Well, that's all that these wars were about. They were justice. They were God using his people as his um, tool of justice um, to bring about judgment. Now listen, God's people, Old Testament, were a physical people. A kingdom? God's people now are a spiritual people, right? God, this no longer happens or, or applies. This can never be an excuse um, for war or imperialism or anything. This happened one time in history, God using his nation. Now, Paul says, we fight, but we fight a different 
kind of war. We fight a different enemy. We fight spiritual battles. We destroy um, strongholds. We fight with the word, right? So this doesn't uh, apply anymore today, but in history, in context, here is God uh, bringing about justice um, against this evil. And the example of Adonai Bezek illustrates that for us, right? God calls Judah to action. They successfully attack this town, and they take Adonai Bezek. Now listen, notice that's not his name. Bezek's in the name. Adonai means Lord. just means Lord of Bezek. This is the king of Bezek. They take him. They cut off his thumbs and his toes. He can no longer wage war, right? As a king, he has been um, neutralized. But we, with our modern sensibilities and our political correctness, we kind of have a problem with Israel's actions here, right? Oh, what are they? This is terrible. What are they doing? But look at this. Apparently, the one to whom the action is performed did not. He says... As I have done, so God has repaid me. Quite simple. He, he understood justice. He understood um, that he deserved what he got. And so God's judgment throughout history is simply to give people over to the natural consequences of their actions and desires, right? The life that they themselves have chosen. We can't go through all this again because we just did it two weeks ago in Galatians 6. Remember with the principle of reaping and sowing, our actions have consequences, cause and effect. And that's what we see in Romans 1, right? People, they knew God. They choose to reject that knowledge. They reject God, go after other things. Well, what does God do? He just gives them those other things. He says, this is what you want. All right. Here you go. He gives them over to their desires. He gives them what they want. Right? The Canaanites for centuries had chosen to pursue a life of evil and injustice. And now the natural consequences of that is justice. And Adonai Bezek gets that. He seems to be very resigned in understanding of what has happened to him. So this was justice for the Canaanites. And it was protection for the Israelites. Right? We don't send our children to daycares run by drug dealers and prostitutes, right? It's just not a good idea. It's, it's common sense, right? You don't want to put them in that environment. You don't want to surround them with that influence. God knew how seductive the evil practices of the Canaanites would be. He knew the danger of constantly immersing yourself in that world. Eventually, it's going to rub off on you. So repeatedly in Exodus and Deuteronomy, God is just warning them over and over. He says, when you get in the land, drive them out. When you drive them out, tear down those idols. Do not bury their women because they will lead you to worship other gods. He knew that it would draw them away from the worship of him. And listen, this is eminently practical for us today, isn't it? Right? We're not, we're not fundamentalists. Or we're not saying cut yourself off and separate from the world. No, that's not biblical. We're sent into the world, right? We're called to, to love and to serve and to minister to the world, right? You can't do that if you don't know anyone in the world, right? Have non-believer friends, have them over for dinner, love them, serve them, share um, the gospel with them. But that's completely different than surrounding yourself and immersing yourself in the world. That's what the Israelites were going to end up doing. When all your friends are non-believers, when that's the only thing that you see or experience, when that's what you're surrounded with, it's just going to have an effect on you. It can't not. It's going to start looking more and more normal and attractive to you. And then all of a sudden, little by little, you're going to find yourself wanting things and doing things that you would have never considered um, um, years earlier. You've heard the saying that familiarity breeds contempt. That's true. Uh, familiarity also breeds 
comfort, which brings con breeds consent, which breeds compliance. Right? As things start to become more and more familiar, they start to seem more and more normal. And as it starts to seem normal, then all of a sudden you're like, well, wait, why wouldn't I do this? This is what everyone else is doing. That's what we're going to see in Judges, right? They're going to leave the Canaanites in the land, and it's going to have a terrible impact on them. Leaving the Canaanites would have been like a, a surgeon removing only part of the cancer and be like, oh, you know, that cancer has a right um, to grow and to thrive. No, God knows that this is death, and this is deadly, and he, he's warning them and telling them to get that cancer out, right? This is about justice for the Canaanites, and this is about protection for the Israelites. Let's keep moving. Verses 8 through 15. And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterward, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country and in the Negev and in the lowland. And Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba, and they defeated Shishai and Ahiman and Talmai. From there, they went against the inhabitants of Debir. The name of Debir was formerly Kiriath-sephir, and Caleb said, He who attacks Kiriath-sephir and captures it, I will give him Aksa, my daughter, for a wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it, and he gave him Aksa, his daughter, for a wife. When she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you want? And she said to him, Give me a blessing. Since you have set me in the land of the Negev, give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. And the descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up with the people of Judah from the city of Palms into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the Negev near Arad. And they went and settled with the people. And Judah went with Simeon, his brother, and they defeated the Canaanites, who inhabited Zephyr and devoted it to destruction. So the name of the city was called Hormah. Judah also captured Gaza with its territory, and Ashkelon with its territory, and Ekron with its territory. Phew. All right. Again, keep in mind, we just can't get into all the details that I would like to of this story. Right? There are multiple sermons just on these um, stories that we could do, but we're not um, going to. The main point that I want you to get is that up to this point, my sermon last week about Judges probably doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Remember, I, I talked about how dark and discouraging this book was, how sinful and disobedient it was. But up until verse 18, everything looks Great, right? Israel is obeying God. They are finding success. And again, remember the importance of con uh, contrast that we talked about last week, right? You have this beautiful painting with darkness, and then your eye is then drawn to the light, right? The, the dark and contrasting with the light makes you appreciate the light that much more. Well, this is kind of the opposite uh, effect of that. It's starting off with, with light and with goodness. Everything's going well. And now all of a sudden when you're going to get to chapter 2, you're going to be like, whoa, wait, what, what happened? Because that contrast is going to make their sin and their failure look even bigger. And here we get just this tiny little window and glimpse into what it looks like when God's people obey. And the seemingly random little story about Caleb and his family helps illustrate that. Caleb and Aksa and Othniel depict in miniature what Israel was supposed to be like. Right? This story is actually found in Joshua as well. It's the same story. 
It's here also to kind of give us this, this foil, this, this comparison to say, look, here's what it would have looked like. Here's what it could have been. Here's what it should be. And the rest of the book is going to be a stark contrast against that. This is the model that pretty much everyone else is going to fail to live up to. These guys are going to be a rebuke to the rest of the people. They are a picture of obedience, of discipleship, of what walking with the Lord looks like. And while there's a lot of the details we could read into, I just want to briefly draw out a few things. Now first, don't let our terrible modern notions of romance ruin a beautiful thing here. Right? Caleb says he will give his daughter to whomever can take the beer. This is not cruel. Um, this is not treating a woman like um, property. This is Caleb. This is a father seeking the best for his daughter. He wants her to marry a great man. He wants her to marry a leader, a warrior, a man who takes initiative and, uh, and who will thus be a fit husband for his treasured daughter. And man, that's much more appealing to me than waiting around for some skeezy 20-year-old to be like, hey, I like your daughter. And I'm like, uh, I don't know about that. I'd rather go find someone that is impressive and that I, that I like and that I can trust. That, that's what's going on here. This is a father looking out for his daughter. This is 3,000 years ago. Yes, it's a different time, um, but this isn't, um, this isn't backwards. This isn't weird. No, he's ensuring her future. He is setting, her, setting her, his daughter up um, for the rest of her life. He's looking out for his little girl. But I want you to notice her. I want you to consider Aksa because she is, she's no pushover. We're going to look at this more as we go, but there's going to be a lot of women in this book. And there's a general correspondence between the portrayal and the treatment of the women in these stories and the spiritual condition of Israel, right? So we start off with Aksa and Deborah, strong women. They're going to be taking initiative. They're going to be leading. But we're going to close with Delilah. We're going to close with this concubine, a mistress, a, a sexual slave, basically, who is going to be brutally and disturbingly taking advantage of and mistreated. So we start here with a strong woman being given in marriage by her loving father to the most worthy man. The book is going to close with worthless men stealing and forcing kidnapped women to be their wives. It's deplorable, right? It's keep, keep an eye on the women in this book, right? The women are an indicator of how Israel is doing. Right? Obedience to the Lord, we see strong women that are highly valued, that are, that are prized and treasured and treated well. Disobedience and the worship of idols, we start to see women who are enslaved and brutalized and who are treated as objects. And man, isn't that applicable today, right? Studies continue to show that an overwhelming majority of men regularly consume pornography. Books and movies like this awful Fifty Shades of Grey which is basically about violence towards and the exploitation of women are now celebrated and normalized and elevated as a good thing. Right? So as you see, drifting from God, women are treated more and more as objects to be used for man's enjoyment. Right? We're going to see that in Judges, and that totally reflects what's going on in our culture as well. So there's this nice little picture, this little glimpse of what it could have been like when they were obeying and following the Lord. Here's this um, beautiful, strong, powerful woman leading and taking initiative, and you're just going to see this dark um, disturbing descent uh, downwards, and we'll see that um, as we go. One last important thing I want you to notice here. These three people, Othniel will meet again in two weeks. He, he's the first judge. It's these three, they're held up as the paradigm of obedience. They're greatly blessed. They receive much grace from God, and from here on out, 
We're not going to see a whole lot of that. But who were Caleb, Aksa, and Othniel? Look at verse 18. This is interesting. There's a reason why verse 18 comes after this story. Verse 18 turns to talk about the Kenites. Right? The Kenites were not Jewish. The Kenites um, were not part of the people of Israel. Joshua 14, 14 tells us that Caleb was a Kenizzite. And both of these people, the Kenites and the Kenizzites, show up back in Genesis 15, 19, when God is telling Abraham about the people in the land that they are going to have to drive out. Which means what? These were Canaanite people. Which means that Caleb, Aksa, and Othniel were all Gentiles. Right? They were all outsiders. They were all foreigners um, to the people of God. They were not naturally and physically part of Israel. They're not, they're not Jews. They're Gentiles. And that, they're, they're converts to the faith, which is really, really neat. Right? You see what I mean? This is a little picture 3,000 years ago of the church, basically. We're going to run through 20, 20 chapters of gross disobedience on the part of God's natural physical people. But here at the very beginning, we see people who are not part of God's natural people receiving great grace, which shows us that this is what God was always about. He is a missionary God. His plan was always to create for himself a people from among all the peoples. Right? This is the church, Israel, not true Israel, not, not designated by race or physical descent, but Israel, spiritual Israel, by grace, through faith, Jew and Gentile, together, one people, one Lord, one salvation. Right? So here's Gentiles as held up as the, the paradigm the, the, of obedience here at the beginning of the book. That's really, really um, interesting. But the main point to get in these first 18 verses is quite simply is to see the great success of the people. The book stops here. Everything's great. Everything is perfect. They're obeying. Things are looking up. They said, we're going to follow you, Lord, at the end of Joshua. And here we see them doing it. And he leads them to great victory. But starting in verse 19, things subtly start to shift. Let me read 19 through the end of the chapter, and then we'll finish up. This is still God's word. Uh, I'll read it quickly, um, but let me read um, the rest of it. And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. And Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses had said, and he drove out from it the three sons of Anak. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. The house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. And the house of Joseph scouted out Bethel. Now the name of the city was formerly Luz. And the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Please, show us the way into the city, and we will deal kindly with you. And he showed them the way into the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man and all his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites and built a city and called its name Luz. That is its name to this day. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shean and its villages, or Taanach and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Iblium and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages, for the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. 
And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. So the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahalol. So the Canaanites lived among them but became subject to forced labor. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko or the inhabitants of Sidon or of Ahlab or of Akzib or of Helba or of Aphek or of Rehob. So the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh or the inhabitants of Beth Anath. So they lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and of Beth Anath became subject to forced labor for them. The Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the plain. The Amorites persisted in dwelling in Mount Heres, in Ajalon, and in Shalbim, but the hand of the house of Joseph rested heavily on them, and they became subject to forced labor. And the border of the Amorites ran from the ascent of Akrabim, from Sela and upward. Phew. All right, made it. <clears throat> Listen, just notice the language. Could not, did not, did not, could not, did not, could not. God is going to have a very different interpretation next time in chapter 2, verse 2, saying that the people would not. It's not that they were unable. They had already seen God topple a giant fortified city when all they did was walk around it. Right? They had seen God defeat superior forces countless times. He had already defeated an Egyptian army of chariots. There was no could not with God. Right? God had promised that if Israel followed him, he would drive out the nations, regardless of iron chariots, regardless of superior numbers. But Israel did not listen. They did not obey and trust him. What started off with as obedient conquest has ended in little more than compromise and coexistence. Look at the downward progression in these verses. There's no mention of Canaanites living amongst Judah. But then with Benjamin, Manasseh, Ephraim, and Zebulun, it is said that the Canaanites persisted in living among them. Then with Asher and Naphtali, it is said that they lived among the Canaanites. And then by the time we get to poor Dan, sorry Dan, you're the worst in this one apparently. This is downward Dan's at the end. It's the Amorites that are now pressing and limiting them. And we don't end with a mention of where the, we, we end this chapter with a mention of the extension of the Amorites, right? Everything has shifted from beginning to end. And what I think here that we see is very, very applicable. Is It's that little compromises prove lethal. Think about it. Nothing that bad has happened in this chapter. Seriously, there's nothing really gone that wrong. There's no gross sin. There's no bowing down to idols. Nothing too terrible. But Israel simply hasn't completely done everything God told them to do. But the seeds have been sown. As we're going to see next time, these, these small little compromises and failures are about to take root and then just burst forth spectacularly in the rest of the book. Big failures begin with these small compromises. Right? The, the idol worship, the sexual morality, the murder, the mass rape, all the disturbing stuff that is to come, it all starts here. It all starts small. It's all contained in these little seeds of compromise and disobedient. It starts disobedience. It starts off seemingly insignificantly, but there is no insignificant disobedience. Right? There is no insignificant rejection of God's word. And this is how the chapter ends, right? with these small little compromises. But as we're going to see next week, 
God isn't going to consider these small and insignificant. His major response to what seems minor to us is going to clarify for us how deadly and dangerous sin is. Because that's largely what this book is about. It is a serious and very real look at sin and its consequences. It's trying to, it's trying to shake you. It's trying to kind of rouse you from your slumber and say, look, this is what happens. This is how serious this is. And we need this warning because we don't take sin seriously. So I was tempted to just end the sermon there, which wouldn't have been bad, but, but I don't think that that's the main point of Judges. So I want to end with the main point of Judges. The point is, here is to depict sin, but for the purpose of driving us toward and magnifying the one who would take care of that sin. For the, to the one who would succeed where everyone that we're going to look at has failed. Where you and I have failed. Now I want you to notice something um, as we close. Judah. Look at the top. You, Judah mentioned at the beginning. Not, not the individual. Right? Not the son of Jacob. But the tribe. This is the tribe of Judah. Judah is mentioned ten times in this one chapter. Well the tribe of Judah is only mentioned seven times in the next twenty chapters. Here at the very beginning, Judah is held up as the example to be followed. Othniel, who we just met, he's from the tribe of Judah. He's going to be the first judge. He's going to be the ideal judge of whom nothing negative is mentioned. Judah throughout this book is painted in a far more favorable light than the other tribes. Only two times in this book do the people actually go to God and inquire of God. And they ask him what they should do and who should lead them. It's here at the beginning in chapter 1 and then at the very end in chapter 20. And both times God says Judah. Remember the end of the book. Much of the problem in Judges was a problem of authority. There was no king in Israel. That's the very last verse. The people needed leadership. And every time they asked God who would lead, he answered Judah. Um, why, though? Why Judah? And there's not enough time to do this justice. But, but real quick, all the way back to Genesis 49.10, you have Jacob who is dying, and he's giving these blessings to his 12 sons. And these blessings are kind of like, they're, not just, they're like prophetic. They're, they're kind of about their future and what they're going to be like and who they're going to be. And this is what he says concerning his son Judah. He says, Judah is a lion's cub. He says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. So Judah, from the very beginning, was to be the ruler. Judah was to be the king. But there was no leadership in Judges. They needed a king. What king? David, right? The man after God's own heart. Who was he from? Right? He was from the tribe of Judah. But what happens? David doesn't turn out to be what the people needed at all. David was an adulterer. David was a murderer. The last story of David's life, he's not trusting the Lord and the people suffered greatly um, for it. But God made a covenant with David anyways in 2 Samuel 7. And he says to him, I will raise up your offspring after you and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Who's that? Solomon? Nope. He was, he was a disaster. And like, just like in Judges, the kings after Solomon followed this general downward pattern. They get worse and worse and worse until finally God just wipes his hands and says, all right. And the people are exiled and they're removed from the land. Right? There was a king in Israel, 
in those times. But he did what was right in his own eyes, and things um, were about the same as they were in Judges. And as you get to the end of the Old Testament, and as it's drawing a close, things aren't any better, and we're left wondering. If you've ever read through it and you get to the end, you're left longing, like, can anyone fix this? Can, can anyone help us? Can anyone do for us what we have proven incapable of doing for ourselves? And then Judah leaps back onto the stage right as you begin the New Testament, as Jesus enters the scene. Revelation 5.5 just majestically describes him uh, as following. It says, weep no more. Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. He has conquered. But then in the very next verse, as it describes the, the depiction of Jesus, of this lion, what does he look like? He appears as a lamb. But not only that, he appears as a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Jesus is the lion of Judah. He is the one that the people needed. He is the one that judges points us forward to. He is the only one that can do what so many before him failed to do. He is the only king fit to lead his people. Why? Because he was the only one who was both a lion and a lamb. Meaning that he led in a way that no one before him could. Meaning he could actually do the one thing that we could not do for ourselves. Judah tries to lead the people. Judges tries, the rest of the judges try to lead the people. David, Solomon, the other kings try to lead the people, but it always fails. Why? Because they couldn't solve the people's real problem. They could not deal with the major theme of this book, which is sin. But Jesus could, and Jesus did. You see, the disturbing sin of Judges is supposed to remind us of the disturbing sin in our own hearts. The complete inability of anyone in Judges to do anything about that is supposed to remind us of our complete inability to do anything about that. And in so doing, it forces us to look elsewhere. It forces us to take our eyes off of ourselves, off of anyone around us, and say there's got to be someone else. There's got to be someone who can do this for us. And that's why Jesus is so remarkable. He is the Lion of Judah that comes, but he comes as a lamb. No one expected that. He is the king that comes. They were expecting that, but he comes as a servant. No one was expecting that. Why? Why did he come like that? To take care of that sin problem that no one in Judges, that no one in the Old Testament can take care of. We cannot do it. He does it for us. You see, our sin just demands a great, great payment. And that payment is, is death. Remember? It's just logical. God is the author and the giver of life. When we reject him, we're rejecting life, right? So, so death is the obvious natural result. That's what we owe um, for our sin. But the gospel is the only thing that says that Jesus came to make that payment for us by dying for us. That's the whole point of Judges. Judges gets us to Jesus. Judges shows us our great need for Jesus. And it helps us to appreciate the magnitude of what he has done for us. We are Israel in this book, right? We're the, we're the terrible ones who are disobeying and rejecting and running. We're the ones going after other gods and doing what is right in our own eyes. But the amazing thing that we're going to see about this book is that God never completely rejects his people. He never gives up 
on his people. He, he pursues them. He makes a way for them. And he does so ultimately through Jesus Christ. And that's what Judah points us to. Oh, Judah's going to lead. He's going to fall short. Oh, David's going to lead. He's going to fall short. Who is it going to be? And then Jesus comes in and he actually does it. He is the lion. He is the king who died to serve and to save his people. And that's why the gospel is just so utterly different and unique from everything else out there. Everything else is telling you the same basic message. You must do this. You must earn. You must merit this salvation. <laughs> Judges is a giant slap in the face and says, good luck with that. Like, here's, here, go for it. Here's what you are like apart from him. Only the pure gospel presents this um, as a gift, as grace. It is, a, it is a gift. You don't do anything for it. You don't deserve it. You don't work for it. You can't. You are Israel in Judges. You are the one running and rejecting. But the good news that we're going to see in Judges and that we're going to see more clearly in the gospel is that God runs right after you. He has rescued you. And all we are called to do is rest in that, right? That's grace, right? It's, it's different, and I want to make sure you get that it's different. You know, you always hear this, the illustration, I've used it before, of, of the, you know, oh, you're, you're, you're treading water. You're like, oh, no, I'm treading water. I need help. Um, and someone throws you a rope. They're like, you just have to grab the rope. That's Jesus, and you'll, you'll be saved. No, <laughs> it's not the gospel. That's not it at all, right? That's works righteousness. No, the gospel says you're dead on the bottom of the ocean. You're dead. You are dead in your trespasses and sin, Ephesians 2, um, 1. Dead people don't do stuff. Dead people don't do good. Dead people don't choose correctly. But then it says, but God, but God, you were this, but God is this. And out of his great mercy and his great love, he goes down and he gets you and he replaces you with Jesus. Jesus dies so that you can live. It's a gift. It's grace. And Judges, I think, is going to help us see um, how much what we just sang, uh, we're about to sing, sorry, it's the last song, uh, salvation belongs to our God, right? That's, that's the gospel. Uh, that's what we believe. It doesn't belong to us. It's not about me. It's not my merit. It's not what I can do. It's his gracious and merciful gift um, to his um, people. So the great sin in Judges is just going to magnify that and help us love this, this Lion of Judah, this, this Lamb who was slain um, for his people. That's our only hope. Judges says you can't do it. The good news is that God has done it for you. All right, let's, let's close um, with a word of prayer as we um, wrap up here. <clears throat> Father, I thank you for your mercy. Um, Father, I thank you for your faithfulness to your people uh, that we're going to see displayed in Judges. Father, we confess um, that we are Israel. Um, Father, we um, have covenanted and committed to serving and to following you. Father, in the very next chapter, Lord, we're, we're already not doing it. Uh, Father, I, I see that so disturbingly in my own heart, uh, Lord. Uh, Father, um, have mercy on me, um, a sinner. And I pray for every one of us in here that this Judges would be a wake-up call um, to our own condition, to our spiritual condition apart um, from you, um, Father, that we have nothing to offer, that we have um, nothing to bring to the table except for the sin um, that demands the death of your son. Um, Father, we thank you that you have provided for us a way. You have provided the death um, that w was required um, in our place by sending your son Jesus to die for our sins, uh, sins already committed, sins 
yet to be committed, sins that we're not even aware of, um, Father. It is finished. It is covered. It is paid for um, on the cross. Um, So we thank you for doing for us what the judges couldn't do and what we could not do for ourselves. Father, help us um, to love you. Help us to serve you. Father, send us your spirit, um, Father, and enable us to do what we cannot do um, for ourselves. So, Father, I pray that as our sin is laid bare in this series, Father, I pray that your grace um, would just shine forth and that you would receive much, much glory. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.